Well, Shabbat Shalom, everybody. It's exciting as we come into the full feast of Yahweh that I truly believe that Yahweh is calling us as a body, as a ministry to maturity. This is a time when really, really we can focus on his kingdom and his calling in each and every one of our lives. And as he's calling us to maturity, it's important to remember what the writer of the book of Ivrim said in chapter 6. It's written, Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Mashiach, let us go on to perfection. You see, we're called to now come into perfection through his Malkitzedic priesthood and through, I believe, these upcoming full festivals of Yahweh. He says, I'm not laying again the foundation of repentance, Teshuvah, from dead works and of faith toward Eloah, of the doctrine of mikvaot, baptisms, of the laying on of hands, of the resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if Eloah permits. You see, before we go on to perfection, before we can continue into maturity, we have to revisit the elementary principles of Mashiach. Why? Because we live in a culture which exists in an elementary world. And we have come out of a religion that is so soaked in the elementary principles of Christ that that is all that you would hear each and every Sunday. Sunday after Sunday, baptism, Christ crucified. And these are good things, but as the writer of Hebrews says, this is the milk of the word. And we're to get into the meat of the word. Today, we're going to spend time in the elementary principles of Christ, which is the resurrection of the dead. Why? Because we have been untaught, not only in the religious realm, but in the culture that we live in, that when you die, you go to heaven. So we have to revisit this because an injustice has been done to believers, not only in this culture, but in the faith as a whole. But our hope, my hope, is that we can revisit this and lay this to rest. Lay this to rest so that we can go forth into the maturity of the word. You see, it's so important that we do that because Mashiach is calling us to the deeper things. So without any further laduke, I'm going to ask Jeremy to come on up. (laughs) And we are going to carry on where we left off last week with our discussion on life and death, heaven and hell, the millennial kingdom, the resurrection, the judgment, and the new heaven and the new earth. And I'm going to get you a microphone. Welcome. Thank you. All right. We're going to get up here and get our slides set up. <clears throat> so last week we um, we talked about life and death, and uh, if anybody missed that or, or 
think I'll just recap that we're, we're basically taking the position that we are not spirits trapped in a body, that the scriptures say that we are a soul, a living soul, and that that's made up of a body, made up of dust of the earth, and the breath of life or spirit. So uh, moving on to today, we had a lot of questions last week that came up that we didn't get to answer because we're answering them today, and, then we, and there's quite a few. We actually have quite a few more slides than we did last week, so we're going to have to probably power through quite a few, but um, and maybe take a little bit longer. <laughs> okay. But um, so we're gonna we're gonna jump right into the the concept of what happens uh, at death. Uh, we left off with death is final last week, but there's something more as believers. We know there's a resurrection. Um, so. In the scriptures, we often hear the term uh, sleep with mm. regard to those that are dead. And in the Hebrew roots movement, you often hear, oh, they're going to be talking about soul sleep. Right. And right. that's a buzzword. Yeah. The, the, soul sleep. Oh, they're talking about soul sleep and purgatory. Right. And, you know, the Seventh-day Adventists, they teach um, uh, soul sleep, uh, essentially, or, or, you know, it's kind of become a derogatory term. Yeah. And, and we're we're going to talk about something similar, um, maybe maybe even somewhat indistinguishable. But really, we're just going to be talking about the fact that they use the term sleep in the scriptures, and that's because you die and you come up again. You go down and you come up again. And it's, so it's really a metaphor. It's mm-hmm. not to say that uh, you know you're sleeping or that you, you know you're in purgatory in some holding pattern or anything like that. That you. It's just called sleep because you're, you're the dead know nothing, right? And you're coming back up again, just as if you were to fall asleep and come and rise again. So that's where we're going here. So the first right. uh, first thing is I want to define sleep just as kind of even Google defines it. And it says a condition of body and mind such as that which typically recurs for several hours after every night in which the nervous system is relatively inactive, the eyes closed, the postural muscles are relaxed, and the consciousness is practically suspended. Right, so uh, some of us enjoy sleep uh, with nice dreams, and some of us close our eyes and eight hours have fl- flown by, and we just all of a sudden we're awake again. Um, and I think death is an- analogous to that. On the flip side, consciousness is having knowledge of something or aware, uh, painfully aware or sensitive to, concerned or worried about a particular matter, um, an action or feeling deliberate and intentional and of the mind or thought directly perceptible to and under control of the person concerned. So it's pretty different yeah. than sleep right? or conscious or unconsciousness. So are the dead conscious? In Ecclesiastes 9, it says, For the living know that they shall die, but the dead know not anything. Neither have they any more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love and their hatred and their envy is now perished. Neither have they any more a portion forever in anything done under the sun. And that's the thing that we really want you to understand, is that the dead know nothing. Know nothing. Ecclesiastes 9.10 says, Whatsoever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave where you go. 
I mean, that's we're going to these are these You're should fight, be final. We're fighting the culture now, not only the culture of of the West, but also the religious culture of Christendom too. You see, the Scripture is very clear, yet what society and what religion has taught us is very, very murky. And it is, in fact, the elementary principles that we must push past so that we can go into maturity. And I'm really excited about that because I think that, um, again, these things really have, these questions have to be raised and the answers are in Yahweh's word. And David continues in Psalm 88. He says, Shall thy loving kindness be declared in the grave or thy faithfulness in destruction? Destruction, he uses that word, right? He doesn't say in Hades or, you know, some underworld, we can still praise you even though we're in this holding place down below the earth. He doesn't say that. He says destruction. Yeah. And these are rhetorical questions because the answer is no. You know, you, you can't be declaring his loving kindness from the grave. You can't declare his faithfulness when you're poof, as we discussed last week. Job 7.21 says, And why do you not pardon um, my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now shall I sleep in the dust, and thou shalt seek me in the morning, but I shall not be. Right, last week we talked about the fact that the soul and the term being are interchangeable. So to be or not to be is the question. And Job is sitting here saying that at death we sleep in the dust, you know, as a as a metaphor, and we shall not be. So we're really I'm really just trying to drive the point home, I hope, with uh, some of this. So uh, what profit is there in my blood when I go down to the pit? Shall the dust praise thee? Shall it declare your truth? Again, this is David in Psalm 30, verse 9. Where's, where's his, his soul, as you've known it before, the immortal soul? Why isn't his immortal soul able to do these things? What about his spirit that goes to Yahweh? If that's who we are, if we're the spirit, why can't his spirit praise him or declare his truth? Mm-hmm. You see, again, and that, that would be the thing is you can, again, the hyper-spirituality will say, well, well, the spirit goes back to Yahweh. And again, that's where I believe Christendom comes from this, this idea that when you die, you go to heaven because they understand that the spirit belongs to Yahweh, but they're not understanding that we are not spirit, we are soul. And there lies the problem. There lies the problem. When you come to the understanding that you are a soul, and it is the soul that dies, that perishes, that is no more, that has no knowledge, then you can be free of all the doctrine and dogma that keeps people shackled in false hopes and false promises. And the danger of false hopes and false promises is when time and peril and destruction comes upon a people. The fear of man cripples them. And Yahweh is calling us to be a people that is delivered from the fear of man and fears only him so that we can walk strong when others' knees are buckling. So listen to what Job has to say about the entire experience about death. He says, But a man dies and wastes away. Yea, a man gives up the ghost, and where is he? 
Again, a rhetorical question. As the waters fail from the sea, the flood decayeth and dryeth up. He's given an analogy as to where he is, you know, where you go when you die. So man lies down and rises not till the heavens be no more. So when do you rise up again? This is going to come be an important thing later. When do you rise up again? It's when the heavens are no more. When does that happen? You know, this might be a, a game changer for some, you know, like... A lot of people have been taught that, the, that the, the coming of Yeshua is at one particular time or another time. And you know, certain things have to happen first for some of these other things that we definitely know are, are coming. Have, uh, you know, anyway, what I'm trying to say is those things have to happen first before we can have heavens be no more and yeah. vice versa. So and then, he, then he continues, They shall not awake nor be raised out of their sleep. Right? So he's using the same term. Oh, that thou would hide me in the grave, and that you would keep me secret until your wrath be passed, that thou would appoint me a set time and remember me. Right? Like Zechariah, Zechariah means remember. Yahweh remembers. If a man die, shall he live again? All the days of my appointed time will I wait till my change come. Remember, Paul even talks about a change that comes in so the twinkling of an eye. So this is Job 14.10. And like, like Jeremy said, So man lieth down and riseth not till the heavens be no more. That's the key. Because How does that fit when, into your doctrine? Huh? How does that fit into yeah. your doctrine? Because the scriptures teach us that when Yeshua comes, he does what? He destroys the earth and he creates a new heaven and earth. So when do you raise up? So we are going to talk about that. Not Very important. <laughs> Very You'll have to come important. back again next uh, time for that yeah. discussion. But just to keep that in mind when we're talking about... Um, there isn't this intermediary 1,000 years and then he destroys the earth. Or maybe there is. We shall look. Yeah, we we'll find see. out. So just to, to wrap up that, that part of the uh, discussion, um, again, if you were the light bulb as your body and the electricity from the power company was the spirit, that means you were the light that the bulb emits, right? And so if the body is broken, if the bulb is broken, and the electricity goes back to the electric company, where does the light go? And I, I hope that this at least gives at least a little picture. And there's many, many more verses in here that talk about this. But it gives a little bit of a picture of what happens when you die. What do you experience upon death for, let's just say, the next thousand years? If he tarries, right? And the answer is poof, right? The light goes, we don't know where it goes. It goes nowhere. It ceases to be, right? So do we go to heaven? I mean, I think we've kind of already... <laughs> kind of given that one away. <laughs> Cats out of the bag, right? So what we're trying to um, communicate. So, But uh, John 3.13 says, And no man has ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. Where, where did Abraham go? He's... 
not ascended up to heaven, is what Yeshua has said right here in John. David didn't go there, right? You could probably you could probably spend quite a bit of time on this slide, but I'm just going to kind of carry on. No, it's, that's good. It's <laughs> we have a lot to cover. Um, so the question actually came up last week, and I did want to address uh, it. I didn't actually have it in my teaching earlier, but um, what about near-death experiences? Mm. People have had them. Um, there was a famous movie and a book that had been out this oh, year. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the boy who came back from heaven. And then it was turned out that he was a fake, wasn't it? Well, the kid himself, he grew up. A um, number of years have passed since the book had come out and the movie and all that. And he actually became a believer, uh, like, through his own consciousness, right, became a believer in Yeshua and um, read his Bible. And he, and he confessed. His name is Alex Malarkey. And, uh, what he, a bunch of malarkey. And <laughs> turned out to be a bunch of malarkey. And, and so, <laughs> so what he said about, it, about the book itself, uh, he said, I did not die. Uh, or it did not die, I did not die, and I did not go to heaven when I made the claims that I did. I had never read the Bible. People have profited from lies and continue to. They should read the Bible, which is enough. Oh, wow. So all so he had an experience, and then... Well, here, here's the thing. I had a lot of people ask me this question... Because my wife asked me if I wanted to watch that movie, and I said, I'm not watching that movie. <laughs> Well, I had a lot of people, when I gave them my position on this, they said, well, what about, you know, this kid that went to heaven? There's this book, and it's a you know, big popular thing. And um, I said, you know, well, here, you know, here's what I think the scriptures are saying, and, you know, we have to, we have to wonder, but, but well, the kid's just not going to make these things up. And what about this thing that he saw? There's no way he could have overheard his dad saying this when he was in the hallway unless he was really floating out of his body or whatever. Well, here you go. This is from his own mouth. He made it up, and somehow, either through his dad's embellishment in the book or whatever, I mean, a story was made, yeah. right? <laughs> and he's saying that... And a lot of money was made. Yeah, a lot It always of money comes down to that, doesn't it? And I guess, you know, even though he has come out, and the media just did not cover this, uh, even though he, he came out and said, uh, you know, hey, look, this didn't happen. I'm, I'm a Bible-believing Christian now. Uh, and they were still trying to push the book. But eventually, I think it was Tyndale Publishing... House uh, pulled the yeah pulled they the book. pulled the book yeah so um, that's just to say one, in one instance right one instance that was really out there and people had a lot of good you know well nobody would you know no kid could no kid could make this up or lie about it well he did and he did right so it's possible right it's possible so what about other near death experiences are they all lies no. Are they really dead is the question. Uh, they're called near-death experiences, but sometimes people are found dead on, on the operating table 40 minutes, and then, you know, whatever, their heart starts again, boom, and, and it's a miracle. No brain damage or anything. So and they have these experiences that they recall. Um, so really, when, when I, I don't, I'm not an expert at this stuff. But I am trying to explain this in light of what the Scripture says plainly. And my question is, are they really dead? Did they really... Yes, you can be clinically dead, you can be brain dead, and you can be terminally dead. And a bunch of options in between. But um, do we really know 
when you're dead. We don't even really know how to classify life in, in medical terms. They don't really have a firm grasp on what that really means. Um, it's the pride of man and the pride of life. It truly is, especially when you come into some of those medical facilities. It's so full of the pride of man and the pride of life. So I don't think we do. Yeah, we, I don't know that realm. we can necessarily know when the spirit returns to Yahweh and, and, and whatnot. I think some would probably argue that maybe their spirit does go to Yahweh, and that's, that's a case that we are spirit beings, and then he puts it back in the body, you know, mercifully or whatever. And that's a, you know, hey, it's a possibility, and I'm not trying to say I'm the expert. I've never had the experience. But um, I am trying to, again, explain this. I'm seeing this big picture painted in the, in the scriptures about what death is like. And it says it's unconscious, that the dead know nothing. So we have to kind of try to put in uh, these near-death experiences into a box and try to explain it. So uh, one thing... Um, we're going to talk about drugs now, aren't we? We're going to, try, we're going to talk about drugs. We're going to talk about drugs. Lots uh, of drugs. <laughs> I'm not really sure how to, how to get into it. but Just, uh, <laughs> just, just, just do it. Basically, uh, when, you, when you're born and when you die, your body releases a chemical called dimethyltryptamine, DMT for short. And um, This the, is where they get the phrase, I'm tripping. That is true. Yeah. It is true. Yeah. So um, this is uh, very, very powerful hallucinogenic that mammals and plants um, all over the world, including humans, produce naturally. We produce it in the pineal gland, and our lungs actually dump an incredible amount of DMT into the system on any kind of traumatic event to the body, um, which should... Um, give us a little bit of insight as to what people are experiencing with these near-death experiences because um, people who have um, done DMT recreationally, um, they seem to have the same, uh, as much as they can describe it, the same type of experiences as people who have had, um, for instance, alien abduction scenarios, uh, in medieval times, it was fairies and, and elves that would abduct people. Same type of beings that they would encounter in these trips that they were having with DMT. The same feeling of love and compassion. Um, it's, almost, it's almost universal across the board what people experience. There are some people that have had um, some bad experiences. Um, but again, but, this is something that the body naturally produces and upon trauma... There's a bunch of it that's increased in the body system. So, again... Yeah, I mean, if, if you're interested in um, hearing some stories, there's plenty of um, people who have um, put their testimonies of their trips on YouTube and whatnot, and, and there's some neuroscientists and psychologists and um, psychiatrists who have all done research into this field, and there's a you know, two-hour documentary on it that you can watch but uh but basically people have um experienced something very similar artificially to a near-death experience through dmt and so uh, i'm kind of saying that it's possible that um this going through a tunnel and going into a white light and seeing these beings that are um or meeting god some people will describe it as or whatever that these are all connected to this DMT 
whether artificially or whether your body actually just produced it because of trauma. Mm. And, I mean, what a merciful thing for Yahweh to create in our bodies to give us a sense of peace during a traumatic event. I mean, people are, you know, in horrible accidents, and, and yet they get to experience some sort of peace. And the sages would call that dying grace, dying grace. So I, I didn't really get into it, but there is um, uh, a plant in, in Peru, and you can go through this um, shaman experience. And this is where it kind of gets into witchcraft in my book. Um, but you can go and you can have a, um, this basically a, a brewed tea type thing called ayahuasca. And ayahuasca is a root, and they mix it with another plant um, that has an MO, uh, MAO inhibitor. It's an enzyme that... Um, keeps uh, DMT from being metabolized because you do you do produce it in your body. It actually is what makes you dream. Um, so that's why your dreams are so trippy because <laughs> you're actually uh, on a DMT trip of a, of a sort. And um, and actually, if you if you eat DMT, um, it doesn't really have any effect because your body metabolizes it so quickly. Trips only last anywhere for I guess from five to fifteen minutes. I guess depending on how much you've done. And um, unlike LSD or, or mushrooms or whatever, where you would you know, have an eight-hour trip or whatever. So your body just really metabolizes it quickly because it has enzymes to produce uh, or to, to metabolize it. But when you have this enzyme inhibitor, then um, you can have a longer trip, and it, I guess it lasts anywhere from you know, two to four hours. And these people are, are experiencing, again, the same type of thing, um, but this is, you know, when you have a shaman guide with you and, and the people see, you know, animal-headed gods and things like that, that's not the kind of thing that I would want to participate in. But anyway, researchers are attempting to discover whether DMT actually allows the brain to survive longer without oxygen. So um, if they're, actually, they're actually thinking that someday we'll have DMT um, in ambulances so that they can inject them with that and it actually can help preserve their brain without having to uh, um, worry about an extra 50 minutes. People are going to go around get all these addicts <laughs> injuring themselves. And yeah, yeah. Like, Call the ambulance! Call the ambulance! Yeah, it, could, it could get bad. <laughs> um, so, yeah. yeah. They're going to have to legislate that. Yeah, right now it's a Schedule One drug, so it's illegal oh. to possess. It's yeah. illegal to distribute anything you can't in, in every country it's just without without a religious exemption it's completely big time illegal so do not attempt to purchase this stuff um so yeah anyway in, in response to life-threatening situation the lungs can synthesize a large amount of dmt and release it into the bloodstream within seconds um, and dmt is involved in the healing and regeneration of cells so it's pretty pretty interesting stuff. It's interesting that Yahweh has produced that. It's connected with the third eye because it's produced by the pineal gland. So any of you have gotten into that type of new age stuff, then you might you know might have had that connection. Um. So hopefully, I mean, I, I'm again, I'm not an expert, but that's my attempt to try to explain the near death experience because people can artificially um, experience those th- those types of things. So, um, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. I could be totally wrong. I've never done DMT for the record, so uh, I'm not. I'm not an expert, but um, I don't really have anything for that. But so another one that came up um, 
last week was, what about 1 Corinthians 5, 3? Absent from the body, present with the Lord, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very popular. Yeah. Um, there's actually, uh, I think, three places where he says something similar. Um, there's also 2 Corinthians 5, and I think it's Philippians 1, yeah. So if you look at, uh, if you want to open your Bibles and just flip to 1 Corinthians um, 5, 3, it says, for, verily, uh, for I verily, as absent in the body, but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that has done this deed. And the reason I brought this one up was because it didn't have anything to do with going to heaven or or anything like that. Paul was just simply saying that he was literally absent bodily or physically from the congregation that he was writing to in Corinth. And that he was present in spirit, right? But he wasn't, right? He wasn't like astral projecting to Corinth, right? We don't believe that. He's just saying, I'm present in spirit. My my mental disposition, my mental disposition is with you or, or, or you're on my mind. Right, I'm thinking about you guys. So, if it's fair using Paul's own words to say that absent in the body and present in spirit, in spirit can mean metaphorically something than literally going to heaven or literally being in the spirit or you know whatever. That's my goal here is to just kind of show you with Paul's own words in First Corinthians five what maybe he's saying. Uh, in Second Corinthians five, Second mm, Corinthians five six, yeah. So Second Corinthians five is where he actually starts talking about being absent from the body and present with the Lord and and all of that. But if we read the whole chapter, we see it's talking about the resurrection. He's talking. He talks about three different bodies. He says uh, the earthly body, which is this mortal and corruptible body. He talks about the unclothed body. Right? Again, we have to remember he does tend to use figures of speech all the time, metaphors. So this is a metaphor for death. And the heavenly body, which is the resurrected, immortal, and incorruptible tabernacle. So, And then just to give it a little bit more context, it says, um, Therefore we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are present with Yahweh. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from this body and to be present with Yahweh, which is meaning in the resurrected body. So he's really just making a statement of, I would rather be in the resurrection than be dealing with all this nonsense. I think, the, I think if we just read the whole chapter, just read it from verse 1 all the way down, even to just here, you're going to see that it's talking about the resurrection and it's in a comparison to this physical, mortal, and corruptible flesh. It's not talking about, as soon as I die, I get to go to be with Yahweh in heaven for the next however many thousand years, and then I'm, for whatever reason, resurrected into a, another physical body. And that doesn't even make sense to me. Um, so moving on to Philippians one twenty three, uh, he basically says something similar, having a desire to depart and to be with Messiah, which is far better. Better, And again, it's just really um, a desire, right? We all desire to be absent from this 
corruptible flesh and to be with Messiah, which means to be in the resurrection and in the resurrected body and in the new earth. Yeah. Right? Hopefully that, that's satisfactory. I mean, if you're not, just email me and we'll debate it. <laughs> uh, so who, who is in heaven? I think that um, there's probably some discussion about Enoch and Moses and Elijah because of the Mount of Transfiguration and you know, there are strange scenarios where they were taken up. But if we read Hebrews eleven three nine, and this is controversial. It's a con- I mean, I'm kind of winging it here as far as, you know, I'm just trying to plug these in to the big picture. It says, all of these, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. So this is, this is the hall of faith, they call it, right? Yeah, they the haven't received the promise. Right, so which is a resurrection, of course. They right. have not attained it. it. Says Yahweh, having provided some better thing for us, that they, right, that list of people, including Enoch, Moses, Elijah, everybody, right, they, without us, without you and me and everybody else that's still alive, should not be made perfect or have the resurrected body. So they didn't get some ad- advantage of dying earlier and going off to heaven. That we don't get. We're, wherever they're going, wherever we're going, we're all going to go there together at the same time, yeah. which will be at the resurrection, at the destruction of the earth. I think you really have to you have to ask what is the promise. And I know just coming into the messianic movement um, back when I did the the um, the big thing always seemed the big focus always seemed to be going to the land and the greater exodus and getting to the land and the millennial kingdom and you know, rah rah. You know, it was. But you know, as a Christian coming into it and and really having a firm foundation regarding this topic, I was going. You know what? I'm not really looking forward to the land. Right? That that's a nice little thousand year period of time that you know I'm sure we'll enjoy if I get to be a part of that. But the I real want the promise. resurrection. It's the resurrection, the new body, the new earth, and to be with Him. Forever. That's the true promise. Yeah, and some Not then the intermediary would, promise. Right, and then some would argue that that happens before the millennium. But we're going to get into we're going to get into that next week. Right. So, you know, there, in Hebrews it also says some things about um, about Enoch. So we need to address those. Um, but I want to go back to Genesis five, where it talks about Enoch, and it says, "All the days of Enoch were three hundred sixty-five years." Right, so then there was an end of counting to his years, um, and Enoch walked with Elohim, and he was not. Right, So his life here on earth, he walked with Elohim. Not that he died and then went and walked with Elohim, but he walked with Elohim, much, you know, much like uh, any man of faith would say they were walking with Elohim, and he was not. Then he was, he was dead, in my estimation, for Elohim took him. Now, right, he was taken up. Um, Hebrews 11.5 says, By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death. Well, Jeremy, there it is. And was not found because Yahweh had translated him. For before his translation, he had a testimony. He had this testimony that he pleased Yahweh. So when this we read, is the verse that everybody hangs on and says, Look, there it is. You see, yeah. Enoch was translated and he didn't die. But it doesn't say that. It says that he did not see death. So what does that mean? You're going to explain that. Yeah. So just just to kind of take it, take the weight of this argument off of my shoulders and put it onto somebody else, I'm going to uh, quote the um, 
60, I think 16th century uh, commentary, Christian commentary, Baptist, uh, John Gill, who says about this particular thing, that all men, wicked and righteous, and though there have been some exceptions as Enoch and Elijah, and all will not sleep or die, some will be found alive at Christ's appearing, yet such will undergo a change which is equivalent to death, as Enoch and Elijah have done, and generally speaking, men die but once. So he's saying that this thing that is called translation and being taken, that Enoch and Elijah experienced, was a change, right? And we heard Job talk about a change, and we talked, and we heard about um, Paul talking about this change in the twinkling of an eye. Um, this is like half of the change coming, and almost he says he says quite literally here a change which is equivalent to death. So when we go back and we read what happened to Enoch or what happened to Elijah, they were translated. Or they were taken, maybe they were, you know, beamed up in a UFO or something, right? But they were taken away from a scenario that they were going to, they were going to see a violent death, that they should not see death, that they should not be killed at the hands of men that were surrounding them because of their righteous walk with Elohim. And so, that's the key: is that these men were walking so righteously with Yahweh that whatever the situation was, that they didn't see the result of man's wickedness upon their life, that because of the righteousness in Yahweh, Yahweh didn't allow them to be killed or to see the death. He translated them. Was that the same word used when Philip was translated? The question was, was that the same word used as when Philip was translated? Great question. I have no idea. Great question. We can certainly write that down and... Yeah, <laughs> get back to you. No, I don't know if the if the word is the same because um, I didn't look at the the Greek for for Philip. But uh, I think in Philip's trans in translation, he was moved. I think from location to location. Yeah, and I think that he he was found later, if I'm not mistaken. But it's not in here because I don't think that he actually died. Um. 1 Corinthians 15:52 it says in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed for this incorruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality so the focus here being Again, when are the dead raised? When does this corruptible put on incorruptibility? When does this mortal, I'm a soul, I'm a mortal soul that can die. When do I get to be a soul that is immortal? Because I'm not that right now, right? And if if there was no um, blessed resurrection, we would all be dead and dead as dead, right? We would have no hope. So it's at the last trump. And... That's when the dead are raised. And it doesn't say, gosh, I'm getting ahead of myself, but it doesn't say anything about the dead are raised here, and then there's a thousand years, and then the dead are raised over here. Right? It just says, when the dead are raised, it's at the last trump. Now the question we're going to answer next week is, when when does that happen? Uh, let's see, what is this? This is First Thessalonians 4. It says, For this we say unto you by the word of Yahweh that... We which are alive and remain in the coming of the Master shall not 
prevent them which are asleep, again, right? For Yeshua himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. So we know Yeshua comes at this last trump uh, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of Yahweh. And the dead in Messiah shall rise in the air first. Then we, which are alive and remain, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the master in the air. And so shall we be with him, uh, be with the master. So again, the point is being the trump of Yahweh. Yeshua is connected to that when he comes with a shout with the trump. That's when the, the rising happens. That's when the resurrection happens. Who is in heaven again? Uh, Proverbs 30. This is um, Solomon saying, Who has ascended up to heaven or descended? And this is actually Yahweh speaking here. Mm-hmm. Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has bound the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? If you can tell. You know that, <laughs> and actually Yeshua says this very same thing later. Who has ascended up to heaven or descended? In John three, we read that earlier. And no John man has ascended up to heaven. Is where Yeshua is uh, restating this. But he that came down from heaven, and he he changes it up a bit. Even the Son of Man. Which is in heaven. So, you know, J. Vernon McGee is not in heaven, and that, that's really hard for a lot of Christians to, to grasp that. How can J. Vernon McGee not be in heaven with that fabulous devotional, the daily devotional? I loved his voice. It was so fun to listen to. So this is, this is kind of the, the nail in the coffin for me in terms of are the righteous before... Uh, Yeshua in heaven. And, you know, I asked a brother today about this. What happened to Daniel? What happened to Isaiah and Jeremiah and the prophets? Are they in heaven? Right. Uh, I I got got a question. I had a question for a a brother, a teacher uh, today. I actually asked him and I said, you know, hey, what do you think about this? Do the the dead, you know, go to heaven when when they die? And he said, well, you know, when Yeshua comes... Uh, to, when he, whenever he comes to this world, he takes peop, he takes the dead with him. I thought, well, I've never heard that actually. That's a new one for me. But uh, he, he, so he said, I said, well, does that mean Abraham and David and Jacob and those guys at the crucifixion when there was that right. resurrection That's of common... dead folks um, in the earthquake? Is that who was raised from the dead and then they were they went to heaven with Yeshua? Is that? Is that what you're trying to say? Well, no one has disproven that, is what he said to me. No one has disproven that. I said, well, okay, well, what do you make of this verse? And like I said, this is the nail in the coffin for me. It says in Acts 2, 34, For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he says himself, Yahweh has said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. For David is not into, has not ascended into the heavens. This is Peter talking... Um, and Luke is recording it here in Acts. This is post-resurrection. This is post-resurrection, right? Yeah. This is post-Yeshua's ascension. And it's saying, at this point, David has not even ascended into the heavens. Those yeah. people that were walking around, they were resurrected just like Lazarus that wasn't a glorified, resurrected body. They were just brought back to life, like the little girl. Like any of these resurrections that happened with Yeshua, he brought them back to life so that they could live a full life, 
probably just resurrected and, and died because of a, a need to show his power over life and death. And then they got to just live out their lives, and then they died. And then they went to the grave. They went to the grave. Um, I had a question last week from a good friend of mine, Gil. He asked me, uh, what about David? Does, this, uh, does David go to his son? And does because he can't go to his son. It says in 2 Samuel 12, 23, but now he is dead. Uh, wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. The previous verse tells us that David didn't go, he didn't go to heaven. Right? So his son isn't in heaven, even though there's that age of accountability thing and and. What not? His son, just like he, is in the grave. And actually, if, I think it's—I didn't even put it in here, but or just a few verses. I think it's two verses before that verse in Acts. Um, and oftentimes, when you're talking about this and you look at the mourning rites in the Tanakh, is that when a person would be grieved, they would grieve so much that they it would almost be as if they were dying, that they were themselves going to the grave because of the great grief. They would shred their garments, rent their garments, and they would be grieving for their lost son or their children, and they would be as if they were going to the very grave themselves. So does anybody have the uh, verse there for Acts 2.32, I think it is? You can bring it up. Um, I, th- I think I can remember off, off the cuff here. It just basically says... It says plainly, David is dead, and he Acts, is in the Acts two thirty two. I think that's it. Um, says, then Yeshua Elohim has raised up. This Yeshua Elohim has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of Elohim, and having received from the Father the promise of the Ruach Hakodesh, He has poured out this, which we now see and hear. I think it's twenty nine here. Twenty nine, men and brethren. Let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. That's very plain. Very clear. Yeah. And then a couple of verses later we read, for David has not ascended into the heavens. So being in the grave, being dead, does not mean that you are in heaven. So even one who has a heart after Yahweh, as David did. So um, there's this question about... Uh, in Ephesians four nine, it comes up, but um, it comes up regarding the ascension and descension verses that we were just talking about um, with Yeshua. It says now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is also the same that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fulfill all things. Now, this is something that always used to trouble me back in the church, too, because people would say, well, when Yeshua died, he went down into hell. And, um, and, and then you hear all of these, these accounts, and you're like, now, what? And, and, and this is a very, very strong Christian thought, that when Yeshua died, and um, he went down, and he went down into hell. And you're like, why did he need to do that? Oh, well, la, 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 la. Well, if we look at it clearly now, and from a different perspective, we're going to see something a whole lot clearer that's going to match with the text. And you're not going to have to try and do this convoluted, time-warped, spiritual thing to make it work. 
which is quite unsettling. No scriptural gymnastics. Exactly. Yeah. So right here where it says, um, again, this is Ephesians 4, 9 through 10, if you want to turn there and look at it. It says, um, he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth. Now, in the Greek, that w- the word of isn't there. And it's kind of just implied it might be in italics in some of your Bibles to let you know that it's not there. That means we're kind of free to interpret that a little bit. Um, it could mean that there's a semicolon there or a colon, right? So it could just mean the lower parts, the earth, being the lowest of the parts that are available. And I think I have a diagram that we can put up that kind of shows that the lowest realm is the earth. Then you have the first heaven, which is the sky. That's where the birds fly. You have the second heaven, which is space. That's where the planets and all that stuff are, Um, the sun and moon and stars. And then you have the third heaven, which is Yahweh's abode. And that's the key. You've got to understand that in the Greek... Um, that the grammar is inserted by the translators because Greek doesn't have grammar. You have to insert the grammar, and that's where we get a lot of these, these misunderstandings. So with, with that up on the screen, read that again. Now that he ascended, that is to Yahweh's abode, what is it but that he also descended first to the lower parts, the earth, he, he was in heaven with Yahweh, and first he descended to the lower parts, the earth, and did the work of redemption and walked with mankind. He that descended is the same also that then reascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. We have a question in the back. Um, for, what was it? First Peter three nineteen. First Peter three nineteen. But which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. Oh, great yeah. question. Yeah, we're going to get to that. that. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, we're going to get to the, all of these verses in First Peter. Give us a moment yeah, to build into this, lead into this. Because this, again, is the questions that many people have. So th- this is really the launching point for us to get into the discussion about hell. We were talking about heaven. Um, do we go to heaven? And now the question is, well, you know, what about hell? Um, in the scriptures, the word hell in your King James is going to appear... Uh, Sheol is rendered 31 times as the grave, uh, Gehenna 12 times as a place of burning, Hades or Hades uh, 10 times as the grave, and Tartarus one time as a place of darkness. And those are all translated as hell. Mm-hmm. Now with that comes a lot of connotations for us today, but our goal is to find out what did the ancients believe? And even, I mean, we don't have to go back very far before we get to people who, and maybe the Reformation movement and things like that, that did not also uh, have the belief that we do today of a underworld of fiery torment, right? Where devils are poking you with pitchforks. So the, um, the English word hell that we have today actually comes from paganism. 
right? <laughs> Almost everything does nowadays, it seems. Uh, in Norse mythology, Hel uh, is a being who presides over a realm of the same name uh, where she receives a portion of the dead. Um, the word actually comes from Proto-Germanic uh, language, and it means one who covers up or hides something. Uh, and that then comes from Proto-Indo-European word kel, meaning to conceal. And that's important only because the words sheol and um, I think I believe hades both mean that as well, to conceal or to, to cover up or hide something or to be unseen. But just to let you know that our English word even just comes for, has a root in paganism, and that's going to be important as we dive into hell here. No. Not literally. But. <laughs> no pun intended. Yep. Yeah. Well, maybe it was. So Sheol uh, is a, a. It's actually in the scriptures a place for the righteous and the wicked. Both go down to, to Sheol. Sheol. Well, that's interesting because if it's hell, right, if it's properly rendered hell and our concept of a burning, fiery torment is true, then Sheol really isn't a place for the righteous. But yet we find that's the case in the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, no one praises Yahweh from Sheol, where the righteous go, uh, and the wicked. And it's a place or state of no return, which is important when we talked about death earlier. So Sheol is a place of no return. This isn't a uh, temporary uh, holding place in, in that sense. Uh, and it's the unseen state is also how it's defined. So again, going back to that word hell from the, um, English and its roots, Sheol also has that same connotation. And, and that's the important part is just to remember that they all kind of have a thread of truth in them and that's that you're unseen, right? Mm-hmm. And you would be if the light was out, right? Gehenna, or Gehenom in the Hebrew, uh, this is originally the valley of Hinnom, south of Jerusalem, where the filth and dead animals of the city were cast out and burned. What a, what a fitting symbol for the wicked and their future destruction. But it's not supposed to be taken literally, right? It's a figure of speech. It's a symbol. So Yeshua would use that pointing to Gehenna as a teaching example of what would be the end result of the wicked, just like the carcasses down there that would be burnt in Gehenna, the carcasses of the wicked would end up being burnt, and we'll get into that later, and they become ashes under the feet of the righteous. Yeah, I mean, to let the cat out of the bag, we're not trying to say that uh, there is no hell or that there is no punishment, uh, we are saying that the concept that we have of an underworld of eternal torment uh, is pagan. Is pagan in, in its origins, and we're getting, we're getting into that. That's just to let the cat out of the bag, so you can kind of let that sit with you. The word Hades, Hades, it's Greek. Um, it comes from the name of the god of the underworld. It's also known in the in the Roman mythology as Pluto in Latin. Pluto is the outermost, you know, dwarf planet now, right? Or the outermost darkness. You see, you're going to be cast into outermost darkness. You're going to be cast into Pluto. Right, so it's the realm of the dead, right? Hades is, in Greek mythology, the realm of the dead. It's also translated as the grave, death, and hell. 
Um, it's made up of two um, parts, the, the first being the, al- the letter alpha um, and the word uh, edo, which together means unseen, not seen. So there is, a, again, a thread of truth, a connection. But again, we just want to be aware of the pagan parts and the things that are still true and see them together. Um, I think I have a picture here of like Pluto and, and it being you know, in our solar system, and it's just you know, way out there. Uh, and that connects with us because, there's, like I said, there's always a thread of truth in all of this stuff. And we want to attach those bits of truth or pull, glean out those bits of truth and, and, and know that that's where our scriptures are coming from. Um, where it says Tartarus, there's only one place in scripture. It's in Second Peter 2.4. For if Yahweh spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, which is the word Tartarus, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. So remember, back in Genesis 6 and Jude 1, it talks about those angels that left their abode and cohabitated with women. And, you know, I think we had a guest that disagreed with this position. But, I mean, Jude is pretty explicit. Enoch is pretty explicit about what they thought it meant. So we're going to roll with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that word, um, tartarosas in the Greek, um, it's one. It's just one word, but in your Bibles it says "cast them down to hell." Yeah, and it doesn't mean it that. Doesn't it just means that they cast were cast into outer darkness. Into it's just. I mean, it's it is a it is a, a verb, and it does mean them, and and you have to do something with them to this place. So it is accurate, but we have to think about it in in the correct terms, right? Cast them into the grave or cast them down to the grave. Those are all fair. Mm-hmm. You don't have to say cast them down to hell and fiery torment and all that. Because with us today in our culture, hell has got a lot more meaning than death, the grave. So we have to understand that. So when the translators um, decide to translate Tartarus into hell, your mind is thinking fiery torment, so much more than simply death and the grave. So to give you a little bit more context of Tartarus, um, we need to get into a little bit of Greek mythology. And this is touchy for me because you know I don't like to have the names of other Elohim on my lips, meaning I don't want to give uh, their fame and renown and their character any glorification. So with that caveat, mm-hmm. we're not trying to raise them up but bring them down. Um, in Greek mythology, it was a place of punishment under the earth. It's actually as far below Hades as the earth is below the heavens. So they didn't even equate it with Hades. Um, and yet in their English Bibles, it's just going to say hell and hell for both Tartarus and Hades. So that's interesting. You should know that when you're reading your scriptures. It's not just fair to say hell. And the place Tartarus was for those angels that left their abode, right? It wasn't for man. Um, It was just for them, uh, which is a special place. So um, in, in Greek mythology, that place is where the titans were sent in Greek mythology. So I don't know if anybody's familiar with that, but... The Titans were the parents of the Olympians, so you know Zeus and uh, Hera and all those folks. Those were the Olympians, Apollo. Their parents were the deities before that. 
which when you actually look at the truth of the scripture in Genesis chapter 6, you can see again the distinction between the watchers and their children, the Nephilim, where the mm-hmm. watchers were then sent down into Tartarus. Right. So, and the Titans had parents as well. I mean, there's this whole parent-child And that's thing. again where all of these, these pagan myths, whether it's in India or in Greek and Rome, where do they come from? It originally comes from the truth, and then as it is exported out to the nations, it becomes corrupted and perverted. So the parents, the parents of the Titans were the primordial deities... Um, so you're gonna, this is going to sound familiar because this is a perversion of the truth from the, the beginning. Chaos, uh, chaos bursts the uh, primordial deities, which are Uranus, the, which is considered the father sky, uh, Gaia, mother earth, uh, Kronos, time, which is actually a serpentine man, lion, and bullheaded person. I mean, that should come out of you from Ezekiel. Uh, some similar similarities there. And Tartarus, which was the abyss. And, and, it, and what's crazy is you, you can go and buy yourself a watch and you'd say, you know, I'd like the one with the chronograph on it. I mean, so <laughs> we, I mean, even when you're, we're, it's so embedded in our culture that we don't even realize the name of these deities are in our, in our wristwatches. You see? And we get a lot of, we get a lot of our words from, yeah. from Greek. Um, the primordial deities, they, they birthed the titans. The titans are giants, right? So this, this, heavenly, this heavenly and earthly connection creating giants should be familiar to us. They're, the titans are the uh, offspring of heavenly and earthly. Uh, when overthrown by the new gods, the Olympian Zeus, he cast them into Tartarus. So that's kind of the story. Um, and then Jude says, the angels which kept not their first estate but left their own habitation. He has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness under, uh, unto the judgment of the great day, which is the last day that we're all going to see judgment. So Hades or Hades equals Pluto. That, again, just keeping back in mind that outer planet, outer darkness equals the underworld equals Tartarus equals outer darkness, right? It's just You can see the kind of flows that way. It's, <laughs> It's complex, but I mean, praise Yahweh that I actually was really interested in Greek mythology when I was younger, and and I learned all this stuff to to be able to make these kind of connections. Um, we could have just skipped over that and just said, "Look, it just doesn't mean that." But I was going to give you some context. Um, okay, so what about those verses that say unquenchable fire and everlasting fire and the worm that dies not? Um, we can just kind of. I'm gonna just gonna gloss over these because they're in their scriptures, and you know I'll just give them to you. Uh, unquenchable fire. Um, Jerusalem was burned with unquenchable fire, and and we see that in Jeremiah 17:27. So if you want to you know, look it up later, and it's fulfilled in Second Chronicles 36:19 through 21. Um, unquenchable fire does not mean everlasting fire that it's always on fire that's forever going to be on fire uh, so put that in you know put that into context with regards to us uh, at a judgment or the unbeliever at judgment um, unquenchable fire just means it can't be put out there's there's not going to be anything that puts it out until it goes out so if you have you know a heap of garbage here and you light it on fire it's going to burn and burn and burn until 
There's nothing left to burn. There's no fuel left to burn. And then it goes out, and then it's just ashes, it's just carbon at that point. So there is going to be burning, right? There is going to be a punishment, but it's going to be it's going to be just. Um, so everlasting fire is the same thing. These are these are metaphors for punishment. Uh, we see Matthew uh, twenty five forty one talks about everlasting fire with regards to Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, we know that they're not still burning; they're ash. Uh, you know, a friend of ours brought uh, some sulfur balls from, <laughs> from yeah. Sodom and Gomorrah a couple of years back. Um, it's ash. If you've ever been to Masada, you've passed right between Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, the worm that dies not, um, we see that in Isaiah sixty six twenty four and Mark nine uh, forty three. Um, if you if you turn to Isaiah sixty six twenty four, you um, can read it. it. Says they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of men that have transgressed against me, for their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring to all flesh. This is really just saying. There's going to be a lot of death and dead people, and the maggots are going to have a heyday. Um, many are going to die. So the, it's really saying that there's going to be mass carnage. It's going to bring out the worms and the maggots. They, they're going to have so many carcasses to feed upon, they're never going to die. They're going to be so full of the flesh of men. They're going to be so full of the living flesh. It's really speaking about that, not that a worm isn't going to die. We right. read so I mean, much more into this it. really ties into again Greek mythology, and we're and I don't have a slide for you because I I just put this in there this morning, but um, if you're familiar at all with any of these either either of these two, they're again they're pagan origin. They're Greek mythology. Prometheus was one of the titans that came down and gave man fire, right? And his punishment by the gods was that he was going to be chained to a rock, and his liver was going to be pecked out of him daily by an eagle and then it, the liver would get restored because of his immortality and he would again have his liver eaten out the next day by that same vulture or eagle so that's the same thing that we're trying to imply with the worm dies not is that you oh you're just there conscious and the worm's just having a heyday eating your insides out and that's not it you're dead your body's there and it you know yeah it's getting eaten by maggots gross but it's not this Prometheus scenario where you're being tormented, you know, day in and day out, and because you're an immortal soul, that it just renews and, and you suffer endlessly. Um, I won't even get into the other guy, but there's a couple of different stories with the same type of um, forever punishment, just never-ending punishment that the um, Greeks believed in. And that's what we have to understand that you know the. Um the Tanakh had been translated into the Greek, the Septuagint, because the culture was very, very Hellenized. We have this misunderstanding that um, the majority of the Jews were in Judea. There, there were, I think, 30,000 Jews in Rome at the time. I mean, the, the culture was extremely Hellenized. They had been dispersed out to the nations, Galatia, Philistia, and they have been so soaked and trenched in with a lot of the Greek mythology that when we're communicating some of these, these, um, these hard topics in the scripture, that they will be addressed to this culture that had been 
corrupted. Yeah, I, I don't think most people know how Hellenized Judaism was at, uh, at the time right before Yeshua. And that, that would, even now, we're still purging all sorts of paganism, whether it's from all the way back from Egypt or Babylon or even Greek thinking, Hellenistic thinking, is still permeated not only in Ju- Judaism, but, uh, but also Christianity that we've brought in with us and into this movement. So, uh, I, if I, if, man. This is key. You've got the judgment is a fire with everlasting results, not everlasting in duration. And that's the key. That's right. So Everlasting results. So, in, again, in my estimation, as, as Scripture w- describes the unbeliever as stubble that gets burned in the fire of Judgment Day, I believe that, you know, those like Hitler or whatever are little longer pieces of stubble, right? They burn a little longer, and they do go through a judgment. They do... Their judgment will be greater, more painful, just, as they wax hot, but their result will be ashes under the feet right. of the righteous. So, that brings us to another one of these um, you know, debatable... Uh, topics and questions that came up last week. What about the rich man and Lazarus? Right. Um, Before we even get into that, you have to ask the question, is it literal? Or is it a parable? And that's and that's debated. You know, I think even today that people are still debating whether... It's and this isn't literal. something new that we're going to bring light on tonight. This is a, has been debated for millennia. Yeah, so my 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 big thing with with this is if it's literal, and we should take it as you know gospel truth for what the afterlife is like. Then we a, must use equal weights and measures. That's right. And if it's literal, then it's literal, and it's literal, it's literal, which means which means go read it again and, and take it literally. See what things that you can do in the afterlife. You get to see your suffering loved ones in hell. And you can talk to them. You can talk to them. They can talk to you. You can hear their screams. Yeah. You Great the comfort torment. that's going to be. How exciting. Looking forward to the resurrection. Or you, know, you can just be, oh, well, that, that, you know, that's just punishment. My son-in-law or whatever, you know, he's... No, you're not going to feel that way if you saw that kind of thing happening. They have eyes. They have... They have a tongue that, that, that can be quenched with, with water, that he can ask for it. And, and, and in this thing, it says that Abraham can resurrect Lazarus and send him out to go tell his brothers so that they won't have to go through all this. It's, There's a lot more problems that come up if you're going to believe it's literal because you have to use the equal weights and measures and you have to take it all the way to its end because if it's literal then everything in there is literal you so, see and that creates a whole bunch more problems more. than if we look at the scripture and it's a parable right. teaching a truth and communicating something to a hellenized culture yeah. so so let's you know, maybe ask some of some of the other believers from Yeshua onward what they thought this parable meant, and then we'll give a stab at what you know what we think it is. Martin Luther taught that the story was a parable about rich and poor in this life, and the details of the afterlife not to be taken literally. That's what Martin Luther said. Right? 
E.W. Bollinger said, It is not called a parable because it cites a notable example of the Pharisees' tradition which had been brought from Babylon. So this is actually not a new story that Yeshua told. Um, actually, some believe it's an Egyptian parable coming all the way back from Egypt. Some scholars suggest the basic storyline of the rich man and Lazarus was derived from, a, from Jewish stories that had developed from the Egyptian folktale about the journey of Osiris. And you've got to understand that they come, and again, you know, many of the texts were, we, we have today were found in Alexandria, the great library in Alexandria, the, the, the Septuagint and the, and, the, and the 70 in excess rabbis, you see, and what were they doing with the pharaohs? You see, they believed in taking their riches with them to the grave. So what is the moral of the story then if it's not talking about heaven and hell and what, what we should expect? Um, it's really talking about what we would call today as the prosperity gospel and that the prosperity gospel is false. Yeshua taught con- contrary to the prevailing view of the day that wealth was not an indicator of divine favor um, just as poverty was not a sign of Yahweh's judgment upon a person. There's, there's actually... Um, Actually, he also says here at the end of the parable that Moses and the prophets, or the Tanakh, is sufficient in communicating the good news of the kingdom. That's, that's one of the major morals of the story as well. That if they, have not, if they listen not to Moses and the prophets, it's going to make no difference if a man is raised from the dead. Right? So I should give you some indication of how important it is that that we do not forget the Hebrew roots of our faith. Um, and in Luke sixteen thirty one is the end of this parable. Uh, and he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. So the secondary message here is he's actually talking about himself being raised from the dead, right? And also because he's actually using the name a name in this parable that he's actually later going to raise Lazarus from the dead, and that's still not going to convince anybody. You can have one raised from the dead named Lazarus, and it's still not going to change their minds. So, but he's also then talking about himself. So it's a, pro- a prophetic uh, message hidden in there as well. Does that does that make more sense than trying to take it literally? That it's more about now we're going to get going? to my favorite one here. This is the thief <laughs> on the cross. Yeah, oh yeah. So the thief on the cross. We uh, love this. I don't know. This one seems pretty trivial, but we did have some um, questions come up about it last week. And um, it says, uh, and Yeshua, when would you take it? Yeshua said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, comma, maybe, today <laughs> shalt thou be with me in paradise. And that's the key. You know, if you... One, in the Greek, there is no commas. There's no punctuation like that. Um, so it's inserted into the text, ho- you know, hopefully to help you. But in this case, I think it hinders you. So if you just move that comma on the other side of today, you get a statement that harmonizes with Scripture, and you don't have to, in- you don't have to create a doctrine out of just a comma, right? That's what we're doing. We're, we're banking on that comma to create, to create a, a doctrine. doctrine. That's just not A whole wise. doctrine out of a comma. So we, 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 we were never taught this because we would never have teachers that would break it down for us and, and even tell us the truth that, you know, you have to insert grammar into the Greek. 
And then you slow it down and you go, well, hang on a minute. I'm going to tell you something today. Yeah, so let me uh, read it. Right today, I'm going to tell you something. Let me read it with the punctuation in a different place. And Yeshua said to him, Verily I say to you today, you shall be with me in paradise. That's different. And we know, we know that that has to be the correct interpretation. We know that. How do we know that? Well, we'll just skip on to... No, later. I like that. Let's go back to that one. <laughs> Proper punctuation saves yeah. lives. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let's yeah. eat grandma. Or let's eat grandma. Grandma. <laughs> <laughs> So we know, we know that the proper interpretation of it is, I say to you today that you will be with me in par- paradise when that is the Because Yeshua time. did not go to paradise that day. He went to the grave. So we know the proper interpretation of that text. Right. He didn't go to paradise that day. So he was telling him something that day about what would happen in the future. Right, I mean, even if you hold to the other views, right, with the spirits in prison view that he went down to Hades or whatever and spoke to the people in hell, even if you believe that, it discounts this, right? Because he didn't go to paradise. He went to hell, right, to, to, to teach those folks in prison, if that's the proper interpretation. We're basically saying, no, he went to the grave. He didn't go down to Hades. He didn't go... We, we did go down to Hades in terms of it's the grave, right? But not in terms of this underworld. Burning hell of right. torment where Lazarus supposedly was. Or any of the saints previous, any of the patriarchs or any of the unbelievers or whatever. He, you know, he just went into the grave. He went to the same place as Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David. And the same place that they still are today, the right. grave. And the only one that has come out of the grave is... The Son of Man. Right? So even three days later, Yeshua says, Touch me not, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. So he still hadn't gone three days later. He wasn't in paradise. He didn't go to any concept of paradise or the Father or anything. So he either lied to the thief on the cross, which heaven for, we know that's not true, or somebody's inserted in some punctuation to support a doctrine that's false. That gets us to spirits in prison, right? That's a good launching point. So it says in 1 Peter 3.18, For Messiah also has once suffered for sins that the just and unjust, uh, that just for the unjust, that he might bring us to Yahweh, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which he also went and preached unto the spirits in prison. Prison. So the answer to that question is actually in the context. So if you just keep reading, it actually tells you in verse 20, which were formerly disobedient in the days of Noah, which the long-suffering of, the, of Yahweh commanded an ark to be made in hope of their repentance, and eight souls only entered into it and were kept alive in the waters. So go, going back to that, first verse, see, basically Paul's just taking a rabbi trail. He's, he's saying he was put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Rabbi trail, that's why there's a colon there in my King James. Rabbi trail, which spirit? The, the, he was quickened by the Spirit. The same Spirit 
that was in Noah that preached the gospel to all those people back then. And if they were in sin, if they were in bondage, then they were in what? Their life led them to be in chains to sin, in bondage and in prison because of the lives that they were living. You're in bondage, you're in chains to sin. So I'm going to I'm going to ha- I'm going to just going to hammer through these because yeah. there's there's five of them there's five different views that Christian Christians take. So again it's debatable but uh, I'm just going to give them to you. The first one is that Noah was building an ark, Christ in spirit was in Noah preaching repentance and righteousness through him to unbelievers who were on the earth then but are now spirits in prison, people in hell or people in the grave. View two is, after Christ died, he, he went and preached unto the people in hell, offering them a second chance of salvation. What? That's wild. Is yeah, that but... equal weights and measures? No, absolutely not. Uh, who wouldn't take that um, second chance if you were in fiery torment in hell for maybe a thousand, maybe two thousand years, and the Son of Man came down and said, oh, by the way, I'm going to give you a second chance. Uh, of course, that, and certainly that's not justice, right? And, and justice, uh, sorry, judgment doesn't happen yet, right? <laughs> you don't die and then judgment. It's judgment happens at a later date. It hasn't happened yet. Too many unanswered questions with this. Uh, view three, after Christ died, he went and preached to people in hell, proclaiming to them that, they, that he had triumphed over them and that their condemnation was final. Again, judgment isn't until the resurrection, so I don't know where they get that. View number four, after Christ died, he proclaimed release to people who had repented just before they died in the flood and led them out of their imprisonment in purgatory into heaven. What? That's the Catholic view. We don't believe in a purgatory. (laughs) Uh, View five, after Christ died or after he rose, but before he ascended into heaven, he traveled to hell and proclaimed triumph over the fallen angels who had sinned by marrying human women before the flood. So, well, man, talk about mincing words. We've got a lot of Greek mythology to a Hellenized culture that's being brought in right here. Even the Apostles' Creed says, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell, with whatever connotations that means, the third day he rose again from the dead. If it just means he was in the grave, fine. If it means something else, then you know you might want to rethink your apostles, apostles' creed. Again, I'm, I love John Gill. He, I don't agree with him on everything, but man, this guy nails it. He was really good in Hebrew and Greek. He really knew all of their texts, the Talmud. He knew every everything about um, Judaism. It was amazing. But uh, he says in his interpretation, again, he's a 16th century Baptist uh, commentator. Uh, to to all the instructions and warnings which God gave him uh, gave them, to all the strivings of his spirit and to the ministry of Christ by Noah, which seems most likely that being the term the term of time in which God's long suffering waited upon them, during which time Noah was preaching to them and building the ark. So he's of that same opinion that I'm taking. That um, Noah was filled with that same ruach, the ruach Hakodesh, and he was preaching to a people that were in chains, in prison, and in bondage to sin, and they were going to be destroyed. That's a plain, simple, simpleness of the text without having to do this crazy, Hellenized thinking that we have embraced in our religious culture. 
that Jesus has gone down to hell to preach, and then we come up with these crazy scenarios without looking at the simplicity of the gospel. The simplicity of it. It's amazing. Augustine's view is the same. According to Augustine, the spirits um, are the unbelieving contemporaries of Noah to whom the spirit of Christ in Noah preached or to whom pre-existent Christ himself preached. So he's, he's not saying even that, uh, and as crazy as some of Augustine's views are, uh, e- even he's not saying that Christ went to hell and preached you know, to spirit beings. And, again, the kind of the nail in the coffin for me here is, if you go to the Aramaic, it doesn't actually say spirits in prison. It says souls in Sheol. Those in, the, those in the, the souls, those in the grave that are dead, that have no consciousness and know not nothing. Right. In context, it should be very clear that we don't have to get into the spirits. And again, last week we talked about how the, the Bible or at least commentators or somebody will oftentimes translate it or something, spirit and soul kind of interchangeably. And that's just not right. You've got to be careful uh, what term you're using. I mean, even after our, our teaching last week, uh, we had a question where somebody actually said, well, since the soul goes back to Yahweh, and it's like, no, 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 we never said the soul goes back to Yahweh, the spirit goes back to Yahweh. You can't mix those terms. And if you start doing that, you're going to get in trouble. It gets hairy. Whew. We're like at, at 6.30. Should we, can, we, can we keep going? Yeah, I'd like, I'd like this. We want to address um, Saul and Samuel because this comes up often, yeah. um, witchcraft, and uh, I think we should address that. That's a, a great one. First Samuel chapter 28 and verse 6 it is written, And when Saul inquired of Yahweh, Yahweh answered him not, neither by dreams nor by Urim, nor by prophets. So at this point in Saul's life, he is in not a good relationship with Yahweh. Yahweh's not even talking to Saul. And now let's see what happens. Take it from here. I mean, really, are you going to say that uh, somehow Saul is going to be able to manipulate Yahweh into getting a dead prophet to speak to him, even though he's not speaking to him through all these other options? Um, that's the context. That should be it right there. But there's other little things that we need to address. Um, when the woman saw Samuel, she cried in a loud voice, and the woman spake to Saul, saying, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. And this is telling you who saw Samuel. The woman saw Samuel. Right? She's the one channeling. She's the one on DMT or whatever. Right? She's the one that's seeing Samuel. It's not... Saul. Um, Did the entity know things? Well, if it's a familiar spirit, which is what he was seeking out, a woman with a familiar spirit, um, then yeah, it can know a whole bunch of things that we're not really supposed to be dabbling in. But we know that it can't be Samuel that knows anything because the dead know nothing. And Yahweh's not speaking to Saul through anybody or any medium like the Urim or the or dreams or prophets, and I certainly just don't think dead prophets who know nothing is is the way around it. Like if you can go find a medium and break the law of Yahweh, that you can somehow raise up a dead prophet, and then he gets to say, "Well, you know, I'm a prophet, Yahweh. Can you give me some insight? You know, I know now that I'm awake, you can tell me stuff." And then I'll talk to Saul and say, oh, "No, no, no, we 
And there's no scenario that works that way. Um, later here it says uh, in verse 13 and 14, And the king said unto her, Be not afraid, for what see you? What do you see? So he doesn't see it. And the woman said to Saul, I, I saw Elohim ascending out of the earth. And he said unto her, and in Elohim meaning the spirit, right? What form is he of? And he doesn't see it. She says, and she's describing, an old man comes up and he's covered with a mantle. And Saul perceives, not sees, but knew, he he reckoned it, right, that it was Samuel. He goes, oh, yeah, it's got to be Samuel. Samuel. (laughs) So it doesn't even matter what, what spirit she's channeling. She can just, you know, manipulate the situation here and... Um, anyway, he didn't see it. She saw it is the point. I know some people argue that point. So. so really here it says, Saul disguised himself and put on raiment, and, and he went to and two men with him, and they came to the woman at night and said, I pray thee, divine unto me by a familiar spirit. So who was it? Was it Samuel? No, it's a familiar spirit. It's a demon at best, Right? And we know from Deuteronomy 18, I'll just read it, because Yahweh is wonderful, or you can read it. Well, I know uh, the question may arise, because it does say, I think, later in those verses, speaking about Samuel, maybe twice it comes up, later the scripture says, um, and Sam, it refers back to Samuel, that it was Samuel. Mm-hmm. And um, so then people may ask about that. Yeah, I would say that... Because of his perception. Right, right. In the context in the that we context. know that the perception is to, Sam, to Saul that it is Samuel. Yeah. And, you know. Because I think people would bring that up because it says yeah. twice after, after the context that we're talking about that he perceived that it's Samuel. Then the scripture speaks as if it were because that were Saul's perception. And, I mean, I'm fine, I'm fine with it. We can roll with that and we can say, okay, look, then what are the implications of that? Mm-hmm. What, and, and I've already you know, hammered it but the implications are that right before all this happened it says specifically Yahweh was not speaking to Saul through the Urim through dreams or through prophets and you're going to tell me that he can go against Deuteronomy 18, 10, and 12 and divine by a familiar spirit raise up Samuel who doesn't know anything anyway we know that he's dead and that somehow Yahweh is going to now speak to Samuel, tell him the future so that he can tell Saul. Yeah. That makes no sense. No sense. So that's the option. Is it, yeah, you want to believe that, then you have to follow the, the string all the way through. Or you go, hang on a minute, Saul sought a witch who, was a fam- who then brought forth her familiar spirit of what she saw, and because he was a desperate man who was not walking righteously with Yahweh, he perceives what he wants to perceive because of his wicked, evil heart and the lust of his eyes, and then the scripture records what he perceived. 
which makes a lot more sense in the huge context of Scripture, which is what we're all trying to learn now, being objective as Bible believers, that we're not just believing what's shoved down our throat from the pulpit, that we're saying a text out of context creates a pretext and error begets error. And we're starting to look at things a lot more objectively rather than swallow the soup that has been shoveled down our throats since we were children children or in the culture that we live in we just don't want the lies anymore and but if we're going to look at things we have to follow it all the way through if you want Lazarus to be literal the rich man and Lazarus then the implications of that are this or it's a parable you just can't say oh it's not a parable it's literal and then not follow it through and say that you are going to see your loved ones burning in hell you can flick a little bit of water at them and you can i mean you have to be literal all the way through then that's what we're trying to communicate and i believe there's a freedom in seeing the scripture this way because it's a freedom from the doctrines and dogma of men it truly is so, so there so there yeah so there. <laughs> <laughs> so and another objection that comes up is that, yes. what about the transfiguration because yeah. we know we see moses we see elijah oh this is yeah uh, now we're going to get into teleporting and um, piercing the veil, aren't we? Yeah, I think yes, so. let's do it. So, yeah, this is, this is captured in Luke uh, 9, uh, Matthew 17, and Mark 9. Um, three different Transfiguration. Um, I don't think that's relevant, but basically, uh, we're going to go back to what we talked about earlier about translation with regards to Elijah. He's dead, right? That's my position. Um, it came to pass, back in Second Kings 2, 11, it says, It came to pass, as they still went on and talked, and, and uh, talked, that, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, uh, and parted them both asunder, and Eliah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And he saw, the, he saw him no more, and he took hold of his own clothes, and he rent them in two pieces. And remember, John Gill calls this translation a type of death, probably a merciful obliteration, right? Um, and you can see that Alicia rips his garments as if to mourn. So my position is the same as John Gill's, is that he's dead. It's it's. It's and we do know that, 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 that the prophets of Baal and, um, were seeking Elijah to kill him, to kill him, to kill him. They thought he was just like whirlwinded away and cast on some other mountain or something. And so, uh, Moses is dead. And we can read about that in Deuteronomy 34. So Moses, the servant of Yahweh, died there in the land of Moab according to the word of Yahweh. And he, and he Yahweh, buried him in a valley in the land of Moab over against Beth Peor. But no man knows of the sepulchre until this, uh, to this day. So Moses is dead. Yahweh buried him himself. Yahweh didn't raise him up. He buried him. So if we look at Matthew seventeen nine, this is the transfiguration. It says, and they came down. This is the easy. This is the easy explanation. When they came down from the mountain, Yeshua charged them, saying, "Tell this vision." To no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. 
Did they really see something or were they tripping? Did they see a vision? Was it literal? Was it just Peter's sheet coming down and it was just this whole thing that just you know was a dream to him and to them? They all saw it together, so it was kind of like a uh, you know group trip, if you will. But uh, it says here that it's a vision. So that's the easy explanation for it. But then there's my explanation for it, and it's a little different. So we have a picture up here. I think we can put up. Yeah. There we go. And uh, they're, they're, all the paintings are like this, and I just love it. Because the way I think about it is that if we, if we, get, into, <laughs> if we get into maybe looking at all three of these guys at some point in their lives, we're going to see some similarities. Yeshua was on a mount, Elijah was on a mount, and Moses was on a mount. And they all, saw, they all had something similar going on. Um, and we know that time is manufactured by man, that Yahweh, he's beyond the realm of time. So in time, there is no separation. They're all on a mountain. Right. So space time has, you know, is nothing to Yahweh. Uh, Moses is on a mountain in Exodus 34, 6. It says, And Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed Yahweh, Yahweh El, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. Uh, Moses had just hewn the two tablets. Elijah was on a mount in 1 Kings 19, 11, And he said, Go forth and stand upon the mount before Yahweh. And behold, Yahweh passed by. And a great and strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before Yahweh, but Yahweh was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake, but Yahweh was not in the earthquake. Right? So Yahweh passed before him again, Elijah. Um, so what we're, we're seeing is that these men of Yahweh, they were on mountains when they were having these very important impacting moments of the presence of Yahweh. In fact, when Moshe was on the mountain, and that was Yahweh actually declaring who he is. That's where we get the 13 attributes from, is when Moshe encountered Yahweh, his very, very essence. Elijah, again, coming upon the very essence of Yahweh on the mountain, and now we're seeing that the disciples are actually encountering again the very essence of Yahweh on the mountain, his son. They're all encountering who Yahweh is, manifesting himself, and then, boom, a punch through. Yeah, I think, I think, mm. I think Yahweh, Yeshua, unzipped, the time continuum as that picture represents almost. You can kind of see it just like he unzipped the time continuum and it peeled back. And over here, the time continuum ripped open to Elijah on a mount. And over here, it ripped open to Moses. And if you see any of these paintings, they always show like, and I know it's not intended to be this way, but it just works perfectly. Oh, yeah. Moses has the Ten Commandments with him, right? <laughs> They're trying to de- depict that it is Moses and you can def- decipher who it is because he's got the Ten Commandments. But but what if that's like literal? I mean, wouldn't that be awesome if yeah. he could just unzip the veil and and there's, you got these guys that are with Yeshua. I think we have that up on the, hopefully up on the screen right yeah, now. Awesome. Yeah, I mean it's So there's, a, I mean, there's, you could just look it up. Look up Transfiguration. See all the paintings. They're all like this with this like rip in the time continuum and, and Elijah on one side and, and Moses on the other. Almost like it's a vision. They're seeing it happen, right? Peter and John are up there, and they're like they're actually seeing Moses not 
raised from the dead. Not Elijah raised from the dead. But they're actually seeing a, a hole in the veil of the space-time continuum and they're seeing Moses alive on Mount Sinai and they're seeing Elijah over here. I mean, that would, that would be... Yeah. And then wow. Captain Kirk flies through <laughs> on the Starship Enterprise and seals the deal. It's a vision. Going where no man has gone before. So I think that wraps it up. That does. Uh, we actually did pretty I think good. I actually put that on my speaking notes, didn't I, John? Yeah. Where, when we, if somebody <laughs> invites me to come speak in another state, I think I put something about this Captain Kirk. And Anyway, be that as it may. Now, I hope there's no questions that we've there wrapped none. it up. Yeah. We've got no questions whatsoever. <laughs> no, Steve, no. I'm going to try to feel the... Okay, in the back, in the back. So we have a, the question coming from 1 Corinthians 15, 44. Will we have a natural body or will we have a spiritual body like Yeshua? Well, if we go back to the very beginning in Bereshit, we were actually clothed in garments of light before we were given garments of skin, which you can see that, I, I think, with what we've just discussed at the transfiguration. But... Uh, yeah, yeah. Actually, that's a. I, I meant to even put this in in my notes. Um, I think this is this comes up later, actually, and um, I think the, maybe next week, actually. But yes, the the spiritual body is that body that Yeshua gets. But remember, it's a physical body. He ate. He was being. You could you could touch him and stuff. I know people say that he passed through a wall or whatever, but it just says he appeared. It didn't say he walked through walls or whatever. not that he couldn't. I don't know. I don't have one of those bodies yet, but whatever the case is, it's a whole lot different than uh, what we've got now. It's incorruptible. Right? Mm-hmm. It's different. So, of course, we get that. We do not get that before the resurrection. But it is a body. But, but it, it may body. not be in the matter that we have found it now from dust. Right. Spiritual body in this context, I don't believe, means that we're ethereal yes. after death and that you know, we float around. Yes, know, with your like hand up right there. Yes. No, we're actually talking about um, the um, resurrection, death, and the grave. Another question in the back there, Steve. Oh, okay. Excellent. Excellent. Yes, Andrea. Well, I really quickly, I just find it real simple. So when the Israelites were burying that man in 2 Kings, and the man was buried, and he touched the bones of Elisha, why did the guy come back, or not come back to life, but maybe wake up? 
Well, I, I think it's definitely possible that people can be resurrected from the dead, even pre-Yeshua. I think this is an example of that. And when Yeshua brought people back from the dead, even, I believe that they were resurrected. But I don't believe that it was the resurrection. And the resurrection is when you get changed from this corruptible flesh into, into incorruptible. incorruptible flesh or the spiritual body. Yeah. Came back to them. Yeah. So, th- so he's he's just got the imparting of the spirit so much, like overflowing his clay pot, as we talked about last time. That apparently even his bones, or maybe it's just a miracle of Yahweh, and it just happens that he touched the bones, and Yahweh did it for the purposes of documenting something like this. But um, I, I have no problem with the resurrection of the dead uh, to live on just as a normal life in a corruptible body, but um, I don't believe that uh, they're getting an incorruptible body at that point. All right. Let's do the the, um, the blessing over the food, and we'll have a time of oneg in the back. Baruch Atah, Yahweh Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam.